welcome once again to A Novel Evening. I'm Danny. You can find me over on Instagram as A Novel Evening Podcast and the same over on TikTok. I hope you're well. Um, I'm recording this right in the midst of the uh, summer holidays. If you're a parent, you'll know what I'm talking about. I'm just surviving. We're on week three now. Uh, three more weeks to go. Um, so think of me. <laughs> Send me your good your good vibes. But I'm super excited to be back here recording uh, because this evening I am being joined by Nancy Bilyeu, whose novel The Orchid Hour is due out in the month of August. Um, I love a novel set in the 20s, uh, especially 20s America. Give me those speakeasies, give me those mobsters, give me those racketeers. This book has all of that and more. And I'm super, super excited to chat to Nancy all about the book, all about her inspirations for this, and uh, find out more about her novel evening. So a massive hello to Nancy. Hello. Hello. It's so good to be here talking to you. Oh, and you. And you're obviously calling me all the way from New York. Yes. Which is awesome. (laughs) It's very far. I am on the Devon coast in England. There's not a lot here. We have a nice beach. We have some woods. But uh, there's a lot more going on where you are. (laughs) And hopefully better weather. Yeah, well, right now I'm in uh, Manhattan, which is the same island that most of the action of my book takes place in. Mm -hmm. But I do live about two hours north of the city in what's called the Hudson Valley, which is... Oh, and have you always lived around there? Deer and bears, even, and stuff like that. Cool. So you're close enough to the city that you can get in there, but not so close... Have you always lived kind of around that area? Well, I for a long time I lived in the city, and I was one of those New Yorkers who wanted to live in the city, didn't have a big salary, so I had a million roommates and you know stuff like that. And I lived in the outer boroughs. I don't know if that means anything in London, but that means like way out in Queens or Brooklyn, you know, in the more affordable area, and you know, eating in diners and so forth. So yeah, like the Glamorous lifestyle was not quite available to us, but <laughs> we still liked being in the city. Yeah. Do you ever miss it? Oh, yeah. That's why I come in. That's one of the reasons I'm here today. I'm going to have uh, dinner with friends. We're actually going to uh, eat in Little Italy to celebrate Ooh. my book. Yeah. Oh, amazing. And that is absolutely appropriate. That is a beautiful <laughs> segue to the Orchid Hour. <laughs> You're giving us a little clue. I love so first and foremost, congratulations on your Thank on your you. latest book. Uh, very exciting. And it's a time period that I love to read about. Oh, good, good. I love the 20s. I prefer the 20s in America. I'm not going to lie to you. I feel like the 20s <laughs> in England, maybe it wasn't quite so good. Give me Paris or New York or, you know, Hollywood. Give me that. So firstly, for listeners, give me the brief rundown on the Orchid Hour. Okay. Uh, it is set in 1923 in New York City. The heroine or protagonist, if you prefer, is Zia DeLuca, uh, a Sicilian-American, came to America with her family in 1906 and living in the city. And when the novel begins, she is working at a library and she's a young widow living a very proper life. And a lot of things happen. <laughs> Things that could be violent, things that could be scary. What happens is there's a patron of the library, a very gentlemanly older man who wants her to do a translation. She befriends him somewhat. And uh, what happens to him in the novel 
she kind of gets caught up into and has to get to the bottom of a very uh, dangerous and baffling mystery. And in to do so, she ends up getting a uh, a job of sorts at the Orchid Hour, which is the name of a speakeasy in Greenwich Village where they have illegal drinking <laughs> and they have great music and great food and beautiful people, which is what some of the nightclubs of the time were trying to do because we had prohibition, which you did not. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> you can't but, take alcohol away from the British. You can't, <laughs> you can't take it away. Well, you can. <laughs> people have asked me, how did New York City handle it? And the, and the fact is, is that for literally years, because it took a long time for the lobbyists and the activists and the religious wing to get this passed. It was a constitutional amendment to the United States and New York just went into denial. (laughs) Oh, this won't happen. This won't happen. It won't happen. And of course it did happen. And uh, so then they had to go dry. And this is a city that's built on restaurants and drinking and high society and also in the immigrant communities the local you know uh, the the german italian communities in particular and i think the irish we could safely say i'm of irish descent um socialized and 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 it was a big part of the community to drink and so suddenly this all went away and one of the ways that new york handled it was that the police did not enforce it as much as they could have because they said we have more important things to do yep (laughs) and i'm sure the police like to drink in their evenings as well but there was there were raids just like in the movie some like it hot there were raids and there were arrests and the very soon the the uh, judges courtrooms were overflowing with arrested drinkers and so it was a big struggle for quite like 12 13 years of how new york city would handle the fact that Everybody wanted to drink and it was illegal. <laughs> you know, uh, there were all sorts of unintended consequences, let's say, to prohibition, especially in New York City. Oh, let's see. It's something I don't know a great deal about. I've obviously read about it as I, I've seen it in films. I've read it in books. Perhaps, again, I'm also, my family are Irish. Perhaps I just struggle to imagine a, a world without <laughs> being able to have a, have a beverage legally. Um, but obviously you say no speakeasies began to to crop up so you've obviously created one in your book the orchid hour yes yes i based on a lot of uh research but the the problem is is that um people weren't really photographing them or describing them because i guess because they were secret and so and there are very few that are still in existence continuously from that time so i had to do tons and tons of research just to figure out like a lot of them were basically just secret you know uh like rooms to the side of a restaurant or a store where somebody had just set up a table (laughs) with some bottles but the problem is a lot of these bottles the the alcohol was like uh diluted sometimes it had stuff in it that would even make people sick um because it was no longer regulated. So, uh, and then other people were solving this problem by right before prohibition, they bought as much as they could afford and tried to store it. <laughs> and then, oh gosh, yeah, I tried to, but you know, it couldn't last forever. Nope. And then some people were actually getting their doctors to write prescriptions for medicine and the medicine had some alcohol in it. <laughs> so there were lots of workarounds. And and the what I focused on was um, sort of the high-end wing of it which a lot of people have heard of the cotton club 
that uh, actually opened up at the end of the year that my book is set, 1923. And so there were not that many people who attempted to open a very fancy club because there's a lot of problems with that, you know, of something that's illegal. How do you publicize something that's for the beautiful people if it's illegal, you know? So there always would have to be, frankly, a very large organized crime component. <laughs> you yep. need a lot of money off the books. And so this is really why we have uh, the mafia in New York City is because of prohibition, because there was this huge need and there were some ambitious and resourceful people, mostly men, not just Italian, Italians, Jews, Irish, all kinds of gangs. And they rushed in and they met this need. <laughs> and they, yeah. they, you know, stored it, they imported it from all over, from Canada, from the Caribbean, all the way over from Europe, but mostly Canada and the Caribbean. And um, and they were there at the at the clubs, making sure that people had, you know, not what they called rot gut, which was <laughs> bad alcohol, but champagne <laughs> and gimlets and, you know, wonderful cocktails, you know, I mean, it really was um, a very exciting time. And it was, mm. and, and of course, when you make something forbidden, right, people want to do people it. Do. Yeah. They want to do it. So it's like, what's the best speakeasy to go to, you know, mm. it was just, and word would get around, there'd be passwords, there would actually be like secret passages, you know, it, it does get pretty fun. Although, you know, not all of it would be fun, yeah. <laughs> you know, for people who develop drinking problems, shall we say. Yeah. But, um, but there was a sort of a rollicking spirit to it in New York and Chicago, you know, some of the big cities. Uh, and of course, the rest of the country, because the United States was very divided then. And the um, the, the more religious, more Protestant, shall we say, more um, eh, judgmental wing, the people who had passed prohibition were so upset. <laughs> it's like, why isn't this law being enforced? And there was just this constant, you know, struggle, like, where are the police? Where, where's, you know, the federal government? Why are all these people drinking? And, you know, there was just too many people drinking to be controlled. <laughs> what happened. You know, I feel like look, my dad makes homemade wine. And when you said gut rot, that's the first thing that came into my brain. <laughs> it's my dad. But if they if they enforce prohibition, I drink it. Well, there was this um, attitude of we won't let this happen. <laughs> yeah. us, especially in New York City. <laughs> I mean, there were literally thousands of speakeasies. Yes, yeah. thousands in over 12 years. Not just a few. And um what they what the what the police started to do it was after what happens in my book is they would padlock them, and that's right. how they yeah, and uh, because just arresting everybody they just come back the next day they actually would padlock and so then that became a thing where people would have padlock jewelry <laughs> I mean they would just sort of make a, a fetish out of it you know I mean no matter they what the police it. yeah it did it was just like defiance and then you know after uh, the stock market crash in 1929 and we had the very serious depression uh, the attitude was my god don't we have bigger problems you know yeah. let people have a drink and so yeah. um they repealed it yeah and there's not much that can bring i mean brits americans but together that can bring people together like when they're denied something they really want well, it brings them together <laughs> yeah one thing that was really interesting that i absolutely did not know was that women did, in New York City did not really go to 
quote unquote bars or taverns before prohibition, or, you know, they would go to the Delmonico's with perhaps their family to have a nice meal. There wasn't a nightlife nightclub culture, not really. There were gentlemen clubs, there were restaurants. But with prohibition, what happened is women started to go to these speakeasies in groups or with men or even on their own. And this was the beginning of women going out and having fun, you know, in the 20s. Again, another unintended consequence, but because before that, it just wasn't happening. And then you had the flapper, you know, the young woman who's going to live life on her terms. And, you know, so all of these interesting things started to happen because they passed this law forbidding alcohol. (laughs) It's so interesting. And that's where, you know, the loose women, I said in quotations, that's where these flapper girls would come out and the skirts were tiny. And this is where it kind of all started from when you picture it as well. Like you say, women going out there and being for the time pretty risque yes the skirts were coming up and they were getting their hair cut those are the two things uh but not super short i mean when you see the quote-unquote shocking skirts of 1923 they're still a little bit below the knee (laughs) no one's shocking yeah no this is not (laughs) like especially those people who wanted prohibition for them those were too short (laughs) but they would uh the important thing was get your hair cut yeah. To women have the bob. Yeah. And everyone wanted to get their hair cut. And it was often a struggle. Husbands and fathers were trying to stop the women from getting their hair cut because a woman going around with a bob haircut was saying to the community, I'm not under a man's control. <laughs> I'm just, I'm going to go out and have fun. And so there were even, I saw an article in one of the women's magazines, a man wrote it for the uh, magazine you know, lamenting and mourning the fact that his wife got her hair cut and she has, a, she's a new person and she's not someone he, he knows anymore. <laughs> it's just, goodness. It's I know. So and you've kind of answered a little bit as we've been talking, but what was it that drew you to write about this particular period and this particular setting? Right. Well, I have always been interested in, um, New York City history. I wrote a book set earlier called Dreamland set in 1911 in Coney Island. I kind of didn't at first think that I would write a book about um, prohibition because it's just, I mean, it's just such a thing. And then I thought, you know, uh, frankly, all of the mafia movies and TV shows and books all are about uh, the men and the men have become sort of the cowboys um, of pop culture. You know, you don't have the Westerns anymore. You still have, you know, Pinky Blinders and Boardwalk Empire and Sopranos a while ago and uh, on top of The Godfather and, you know, Goodfellas. And it's all about uh, these men have become mythic. And the women were always either the moms, you know, making the pasta (laughs) or the uh, sheltered daughters or the gun malls. And I just thought, well, what about other women? You know, who were, and I, and I also learned that like, you know, in The Godfather, um, which is set in the 1940s, you have this large family, um, the Corleones, who are all extremely comfortable with being in crime. And in fact, if you want to go a generation earlier, I learned in the 20s and 30s, a, a lot of the immigrant communities, especially um, Italians and, and the Jewish families were very um, upset and mortified when men were getting arrested. And actually, um, uh, Salvatore Lucania, also known as Charles Lucky Luciano, who is a character in my book. He actually said at one point that the reason he never had children is he just thought, you know, he didn't want a, his son to uh, be ashamed of him. 
And he's seen as the father of organized crime. So you see, in the first generation, they weren't like John Gotti going around getting interviews and then Gotti's kids getting reality shows. <laughs> they yeah. were, um, they did what they wanted to do to get ahead. It was, there was a lot of discrimination in the teens and 20s against um, immigrant groups. Yes. And these, a lot of these men felt like, um, I mean, Luciano has this famous quote and I actually steal it in my book. Like, I'm not going to be a bum. I'm not going to, you know, I'm going to make money. And this is sort of the way that they, now, obviously we would like to think that there could be legitimate ways these people could make money, but they did it the shortcut way and they made a lot of money. But, you know, what about their, the other women? Uh, I mean, what about the other people in their families? And so I wanted to like look into it about uh, somebody else who would be uh, an Italian an immigrant from Sicily, actually. Um, how would they really feel about the whole uh, budding organized crime and the prohibition and and what was going on in their in their city. And so I created this character and I just sort of set her loose. Uh, but I did ground her in um, what happened is a lot of people who immigrated from Italy to New York City and to other, and to New Orleans and other cities, but mostly to New York City. Um, they were still following the rules of the Southern Italian culture, which mm -hmm. is that uh, the family is everything. You obey, you know, you're very sheltered and conservative. You go from your father to your husband. Uh, you raise your children a certain way. And um, a lot of people kept that going in New York. And they really honored the villages they came from. I even found out in Little Italy's different streets would have people from different parts of Italy. This street had all the Sicilians. Oh. This other street had all the Neapolitans, you know, like you still sort of stuck together. So I wanted to tell a woman's story, you know, um, who was not you know, a cliched figure, frankly, of um, what a, a organized crime woman would be. And I wanted to look at um, what it was like to uh, live in a, a city that had a lot of prejudice um, at the time. Uh, immigration was pretty much open in 1923, and there were a lot of Americans who really hated that. And there was a lot of prejudice against the newcomers from Eastern Europe, Russia, Italy. Um, they all wanted English. <laughs> they all wanted the Northern European. Yeah. But they didn't want, and in fact, they even, they had this whole thing called eugenics, which mm -hmm. uh, Adolf Hitler made use of later, which they had scientific minds proving, you know, to their satisfaction, not to, they were not actually proving yeah. anything legitimately that, that, that certain people are subhuman. <laughs> and the Italians were, were not considered white. And they were considered subhuman. And this is this is the environment they had to live in. You know, it was, it was really awful. And so um, I have this character who's very intelligent. And as I said to someone, you know, like 20 years later, she'd be a school principal. 40 years later, she'd be an executive. But in 1923, there's not that many options. So I tried to work within that. And then I was fascinated by the forbidden of the speakeasy. Um, I wanted to find out more. I think some people have this idea that it's like Ricks and Casablanca or, you know, yeah. or Gilda, you know, it's this huge, beautiful place with a, an orchestra and a million waiters. Yeah. The fact is, no, they, I mean, the Cotton Club is about as good as it got um, uptown in Harlem. Um, you know, there's only so much you could do, but within that, they could have a lot of fun and they did. Yeah. But um, 
I just wanted to look at the power structures, the uh, the lives of real women and men, and just sort of, I mean, that's something I like to do in all my books is I like to dig in and try and find out, you know, are the stereotypes or just the commonly held perceptions correct, you know, or can I find out something that's a little different? And so then um, I try to work with that. I go down a lot of rabbit holes. <laughs> a lot of rabbit holes. Just to go back to what you were saying as well, I think it's really fascinating because there would still be a, a stigma. So I think we watch things like The Godfather and we see that and think, oh, you know, these mobsters, people were in it yeah. were very comfortable. Their families were comfortable. But, you know, if you were related, say, to Lucky Luciano and you were out and about, immediately there's a stigma. Well, his father was very ashamed of his son's arrest record. And, um, and they used to fight just horribly just yelling at each other and and in fact uh luciano used to give his parents address for a number of years as his home address when he was not living there oh and the police would go there and he wasn't there and his father he was living in really nice hotels with showgirl girlfriends and champagne on ice you know he was not living on the lower east side above a candy store which is where his parents were um so he, he but um there is someone who has, I've read some very interesting critiques of The Godfather, which is a fantastic movie. And I've watched the Francis Ford Coppola narration of it. And, and he actually brought a lot of interesting things about Italian life into the movie Coppola did. Like his father did all the music for the, the movies. He brought in some of his relatives. He, he the food, the, the little, uh, now Mario Puzzo who wrote it is of Italian descent, but he did not speak Italian. And some of the stuff is a little off. And I know I'm going to probably get a lot of hate for saying that, but like you would never say Don Corleone. You would say Don Vito, stuff like that. Oh. Um, that thing's a little a little wrong. I mean, but it's because it's such a great piece of, of, of exciting fiction and turned into like one of the best movies of the 20th century. I give him, you know, yeah. wide latitude. But the biggest thing that I took away from one of these critiques I read was that in The Godfather, the family act like the Kennedys. They don't act like an organized crime. Yeah, family. no, that's so true. That's what I wanted to get into. I mean, the fact that there weren't many consequences. Mm. Um, you never saw the police actually <laughs> talking to anybody. And um, in reality, you know, you really had to stay hidden. Yeah, um, I do wonder if films like The Godfather, you mentioned John Gotti and you mentioned, I do wonder if films like that kind of push some of these figures out into the open with the idea that they, you know, celebrity and the fact that the mafia were oh, kind of being pushed into the spotlight yeah. would kind of, you know, work in their favor when actually it doesn't. Well, there's this great YouTuber, uh, his name is Michael Franchise, and he has um, like, he just got to a million on YouTube, he'll tell you about it. And I watch his sort of weekly talks. He's the son of Sonny Francis, who was a made man. You know, that's like somebody who's gone through yep. a ceremony and is uh, uh, um, an important person in their family, as they do call right. them. And he had said that after The Godfather came out, it totally changed how everyone in the 1970s in the mafia families carried themselves. Yeah. <laughs> it's now something yeah, that yeah, you, you don't uh, think about that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I think it's like, like Marlon Brando or James Kahn. You know, they'd all pick someone they sort of liked. They'd sort of dress like that person a little, walk like them, try to have that sort of 
dignity, you know, because a lot of these people are really are hoodlums. I mean, and they're just, yeah. you know, street toughs, juvenile delinquents, you know, um, looking for a way to make money and, and get by. It's like they were emulating yes. the Godfather and seems yes. like that's so funny. Yes, they started to to walk differently, talk differently. They were very, very proud of it. Now they weren't so proud when Rudy Giuliani, who was a prosecutor, then went for the RICO statute because then they were starting to like show up in the papers and he got them all wiretapped and he put a lot of them in prison. But um, so it's sort of decimated from what it was. But I can't say that's a bad thing because, you know, no. unions to garbage collection to to the, the docks, food, it was all mafia controlled in yeah. New York for a long time. Yeah. Um, and I was familiar really- with Lucky. I'd obviously heard of Lucky before, but you've obviously got Arnold as well, who features yes, Arnold, Arnold based on a, on a true person. Yes, that is his name. And he was a uh, genius gambler. He could do the odds in his head like no one else. Whoa. And he did use a delicatessen called um, Lindy's in uh, New York City as his sort of office. <laughs> he would be in this delicatessen at a certain booth and people would come in and talk to him. And And he did not drink. He drank milk and he liked their cheesecake. But he was a very, very, very powerful gambler. And it is kind of accepted that he is the man who fixed the World Series. He got he was one of the gamblers who got to the players and they received money to throw a game in the World Series. And after that, uh, baseball and all of the sports went through a lot more regulation and a lot more controls. But yeah, he was um, sort of a master gambler. And when Prohibition came in, he kind of mentored, shall we say, the younger uh, criminals and how they could um, make a lot of money, how they could import the alcohol, where they could distribute it, how they could partner with uh, the nightclubs or uh, the restaurants in some cases and just you know, uh, make this work for them. He himself, though, was shot <laughs> before. <laughs> I mean, a lot of these people didn't come to a good end, and they don't no, know. And that's true. That's very I mean, true. I think you kind of had a shelf life, didn't you, when you were in this oh, business, yeah. one way or another. I don't think you hear of many of them just retiring. Well, they a couple of them tried. And it's hard. Um, Luciano uh, was uh, got a long prison term in the 30s. Yeah. And he was actually freed and allowed to go to Sicily to help with the war effort, which is true. The United States used him as a liaison to the Sicilian powers to uh, help the army land. <laughs> so, yeah, <clears throat> they put him to use. Yeah, it's wild, though. And I do think, you know, it's very hard now to to picture it, as you say, you know, the mafia aren't really in the position they were then do no. you think back then there was kind of more of a code of conduct within oh, these definitely. kind of gangs yeah yeah um they have a whole number of rules um about conduct you know like the made men as they call it is you you do a secret ceremony and you like practice it's like little boys in a way it's like you yeah it's like being in like the masons or something like isn't it like you've got to do your little things yeah. The yeah and then you're what what that means when you're a made man is that Nobody else can kill you from any mafia family without your boss's permission. And that's actually important. So if someone gets really angry at a mafia man, say he's doing some loan sharking in an area that you don't like, you can't kill him because you'll be killed yourself. You have to go to his boss and make a complaint. And that probably won't go too well. But, you know, so they had these rules 
that uh, created a code of conduct, they decided to be more like businessmen in the 30s. Yeah. And less like the Wild West running around, like shooting each other um, uh, in restaurants. And uh, it's so interesting. You go from that to almost like celebrities. Yes. Like well, yeah. Yes. Yes. They couldn't resist, I guess. John Gotti and some of the others couldn't resist. But what really did the mafia in was wiretapping. Mm. Uh, they were able to. Uh, yeah. There's one guy out on Staten Island, Paul Castellano. He was the head of one of the families and he wasn't there. And his housekeeper let someone in to fix the TV. And of course they were putting their wiretapping house. And after that, they had all the conversations. And then once you have all the conversations, you got it all, you know, and you're in trials and it's not going well. You obviously have such a wide knowledge on you know new york history you obviously love the research and diving in do you think there's any other time periods you'd like to explore in your writing well i have um uh and i and i think about going back to it my first three books were believe it or not set in tudor england the crown the chalice and the tapestry i wrote those for uh touchstone in the u.s and orion in um the uk co-published them and uh I had a nun <laughs> in the 16th century Henry VIII's England um and I had a lot of fun with that and I would have picked time to be her. a nun yeah <laughs> excellent yeah that's just, just when you want to be a nun. order well of course you know there's sexual tension you oh. know some of the friars look pretty good what can I say um but <laughs> I know that's a terrible thing to say but um but what happened is suddenly it, it's like vampires you know Nobody wanted any more Tudor fiction. And so the next thing that I wanted to write was I wrote The Blue, which is set in the 18th century, which was a um, an art slash porcelain slash spy story, mm-hmm. um, uh, which was a lot of fun. But, you know, um, I just, Dreamland was the first thing that I wrote that was set in New York. And suddenly I just felt like, you know, even though I love uh, the Joanna Stafford trilogy and The Blue was like and and people really liked the blue and it did it did well and I'm glad but like I feel like this is my backyard this is my playground I know New York City and I have to say that the uh the Goodreads and NetGalley and and now Amazon reviews that make me happiest are the ones who say I know New York and this is so authentic I feel like I'm there I feel like you know that's a big advantage that I have because New York is so expensive (laughs) It's hard for writers to live here. And I've been, you know, I've been this novelist who, I mean, I wasn't a novelist for a long time as a magazine editor, yeah. um, you know, raised my kids here, um, never owned anything. We always rented. I mean, it's it's really hard to live yeah. in New York City if you're not like a banker or, you know. Um, millionaire, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, a millionaire. So, but I love New York City history and- I know some of the neighborhoods pretty well and I've done either walking tours or I've just learned stuff myself. And so um, I tried to, uh, I even picked a couple of places I've always wanted to visit or write about to set some of the scenes. Like there's this cemetery that straddles the Queens Brooklyn border um, that's uh, very rural and peaceful and it has the a lot of dead mafia in it. Ooh. And um, I've actually been there and it's a very interesting, St. John Cemetery, it's a very interesting place. Uh, it's way out 
uh, way far away from the New York City action. And I even have a line in my book, it's like, where someone's thinking that, you know, they probably wasn't until they died that some of these people could get some of the peace, you know, <laughs> the <laughs> trees and the beautiful cemetery. So like I picked a few places that intrigued me to set um, the action uh, because I just feel like, you know, um, when you write a novel, you might as well just tap into your own interests and passions mm -hmm. and just hope that the fact that you're interested in it, other people will be interested too, your readers and will we'll, we'll pick up on it. You know what I mean? Like when people just sort of say, oh, I'm going to set a book in X place. My agent or my editor thinks that X is big now and I'm going to do Y. It's like, yeah, but this isn't a magazine article that you do. Yeah. It's like months and months and months of work. Like, how can you do that if it's not coming from you, from like your driving? Uh, like my first book took me five years. I didn't have an agent and uh, I just worked on it on and off, on and off. Yeah. You know? So I just, for me, that's the way it is. It's um, I have to follow, um, you know, where what intrigues me for whatever reason and just hope that other people will be intrigued too and not just be like, what a weirdo <laughs> you know, but I will find um like-minded you know yeah. um folk out there you know that's the that's the hope and this is the big question so do you have something that you'd like to work on next do you have an idea you're already working on well I do have some I would like to stay in New York because okay. uh but not the 20s I would like to go into a new area and I've even started researching. And, you know, uh, I'm a big believer in you think about the book for a really long time and research and do like vision boards and journals and just let stuff bubble. And then when you're ready to write, all this stuff just comes out. So I'm in the sort of bubble phase. Right you're in now. the bubbling. I'm bubbling. <laughs> I'm bubbling. Somebody called it, uh, I think it was a screenwriter, but called it Snowplow. You just got to keep plowing, pushing yeah. stuff and um, seeing what happens. So um, it's a fun stage. And, you know, then when you start to write, sometimes at first you're like very euphoric. And then after a while you look at it, and you're like, eh, yeah. <laughs> what's in your head is not what's on this yeah. keyboard yet. So then it's like revision, 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 you know, trying to get it to be you know, as a reading experience, what it is like this movie in my head. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah, kind yeah, of. yeah. Yeah. So it translates on the page to what you're playing in the little movie inside yeah. your brain. Yeah, yeah. The amount of times I've written something and I read it back, I'm like, that's not what was happening. <laughs> I know. And I do run it by um, a few trusted readers, especially one woman. And um, sometimes I'm just sort of like, I can't believe that what I had in mind is not coming through at all. Yeah. <laughs> you know? And then like, because of, like, that is not what I it. meant. <laughs> but so I really have to have that stage of the yeah. get real stage. And then, um, and that's important because I'm, this isn't just a journal. I am trying to write for a public for, for people who will put down their, their, their money yeah. and, buy it and enjoy it. So um, I have to sort of bring it out of the dream and into like, a, a common reality you know what I mean like enough people yeah. will know what the heck I'm trying to do here um yeah. 
look, the Orchid Hour it is fantastic. So you've achieved it there. I oh, love it. This is my you. time period. This is what I love, giving the mafia bosses. And now look, looking towards your novel evening, you've worked as a magazine editor for a, a range. And I've got written here like Rolling Stone to Good Housekeeping. Yes. So you've done <laughs> you've done some things. You know, we've had Tudor England, we've had New York City. I know. I feel like you we could you could be taking us anywhere for this novel evening. So I'm very intrigued. Well, what I want to do though is I want to take you to my place. I want you, but I want to handpick the most interesting people that I can think of, not in my book at all, but just the most interesting people of the 1920s into oh. my uh, imaginary, but very glamorous and uh, uh, very enticing nightclub. So, drum roll, please. <laughs> the first ones through the door will yep. be the icon couple, F. Scott and Zelda Fitzgerald. Yeah, I mean, I wish I could just witness them in action. That would be, uh, if I could go back in time and see anybody, it'd be them. Although, of course, you know, talk about troubled people. But yeah, well, I, I was going like, to say, you're kicking yeah. it off with a bit of drama <laughs> straight out of the gate. This is not well, a Sunday evening. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And then I need music, right? Yeah. So I want George Gershwin Ooh. and Louis Armstrong. Those are the, my. Oh, okay. Right? Yes, yes, yes. This is music while I was writing. And then I uh, would like John Barrymore and Mary Pickford the, because the movies were starting to be a big thing then. And I love them because they were so wholesome and yet they were married to other people. <laughs> I have a real thing about Mary spouses. Pickford as yeah. well. I've always, I just, even when I was really young, I used to love reading like wiki things about her as yeah. well because I think yeah. she was Mary fascinating. Yeah. Who, who, she was so much more than that, wasn't she? Everyone yeah. said she was this kind of girl, you know, young girl, but she was bright and she, you know, she really this held her own woman. in a man's world. Yeah. And then the uh, last but not least, I really have to have the Algonquin group, the uh, round table of the Algonquin. These were like the best writers, the wittiest, uh, the most um, magnetic and amazing writers of the 20s. And they used to meet at this hotel, which I've been to, the Algonquin on 44th Street. And they would meet at this big table. And one day they said, hey, we're at the round table. So Dorothy Parker is their queen. But also, I would love to have, <laughs> I just love that somebody was called this, Robert Benchley. He was a drama critic and writer, but they called him the humorist's humorist. <laughs> now that's going to be somebody who's funny. <laughs> So I would like to bring all of these people into the room, give them champagne or a gin gimlet or whatever they want. And just, I think it would be the best party ever. This group You're not going to quite believe this because I did a recording last night with a author called James McManus, who also chose oh. to set his event at oh. the Algonquin. He oh. was talking about the whole group. Dorothy Park was there. Nobody in one hundred and thirty-six episodes has ever mentioned them. And now two nights on the trot. This, well, this is synchronicity, right? Yeah. They're in the air. This is special. But you asked this about is. who I wouldn't want. And yes. even though he's a great writer, Ernest Hemingway is not invited. <laughs> he he would this be, last night. 
he would be hitting people, he would be shoving people, and he would be very jealous. So we're not going to have... I love, I don't know if you've watched, but I love the film Midnight in Paris. I really love it. I mean, Woody yeah. Allen is obviously problematic in his own ways. Seen it. Oh, yeah. But I, <laughs> but I love that film. And I, but every time I watch it, I think, I don't think Hemingway is for me. I just, just think he just seems moody. He lowers the mood. Whenever he's there, he's always just a bit dour, usually drunk. Well, there's just one story about him that, I mean, there's many stories that I can't get over, which is that his first wife, who was a little older than him, and it was her inheritance that paid for France, by the way, and the left bank. And she was going to meet him somewhere. He'd been writing. And of course, they're writing on journals. There's no computer and no copying. And he said, bring my writing. I don't know why he didn't have it with him. So she got on a train and it got lost on the train. And all of these things that he'd written, these stories and beginning of novel were lost. And she was felt so terrible and he never forgave her. So mm. I've always thought that like, well, that's like, you know, you do things with your spouse all the time. You're like, oh God, I made a mistake. But like, I always think of that, like it's the worst thing that could ever happen. Like, you know, you lose you imagine though, being someone who just oh. found this little journal. I know. Journals. <laughs> And well, this is the lost, maybe somebody should do a book on that the lost uh, there you go the lost the lost journals of hemingway that's a that's a book right there yeah All right. the, the reality is there somebody <laughs> just read it and was like this is a load of shite and just got that gone this is not for, this is right. not for me this sentence <laughs> these sentences are very short <laughs> i'm not into it really tapped yeah straight yeah. up in somewhere in paris yeah boring oh my goodness <laughs> look i i love this and i do think it's it's fate that we met dorothy parker last night and now i'm meeting her again this is a true part this is my jam this is a true party <laughs> great this is what i love uh this is 10 out of 10 from me and it works beautifully with your novel i think it's for everything that you've evoked in those pages and uh, before I let you go and enjoy the rest of your day, because you can see I'm now sat in the dark in Devon. <laughs> I know. It's 3.42 p.m. my time. It's quite late your time. It's almost <laughs> nine o'clock, which is pretty yeah. much my bedtime because I have two small children. <laughs> but before I release you, I have to ask if you're reading anything at the moment. Well, you know, I just started a book that has nothing to do with the 20s or anything. And it's nonfiction, but I've just started... Um, Antonia Frazier's biography of Lady Carolyn Lamb, who mm. came from this aristocratic, crazy background and ended up having an affair with Lord Byron. And okay. she's the one who said he's mad, bad, and dangerous to know. And I just thought, you know, that's like a magazine writer to come up with that little alliteration of rhythm. Yeah. But no, the book is just starting out so well. And um, Antonia Frazier is a wonderful nonfiction writer. And she just... Uh, I'm 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 in this aristocratic brew of infidelity and uh, uh, longing, and I'm like, yeah, yeah. They were all at <laughs> so it I'm then just, as well, weren't they? Yeah. All the aristocrats. It was just all oh, of them. Bring it. <laughs> There's nothing better to do. I love um, Antonia Frazier's uh, book about Mary Queen of Scots. Oh, is one of that my, was that, that is that incredible. Was my drug. <laughs> yeah, it's so detailed, so incredible, yes. and you, even though it's nonfiction, you're immediately transported there. Right. And it's funny because I've read like like three other biographies of her since. And almost all of them are tougher 
on yes. Mary than yeah. Antonia was. And I'll sometimes think I can't quite separate though from the Antonio Frazier yeah. view, which is a lot. No, more that's the Mary I see now. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I know. And and I liked when Vanessa Redgrave played her. I've seen some other performances where they've they've uh had a different kind of view and I'm like, uh, eh, just you're probably right. You're yeah, probably. but we don't we're not here for it. <laughs> but it's just it's not working. So yeah. Yeah. And uh, um, so anyway, that I just started last night and even though I should have gotten to bed earlier, I had a lot to do today. I just 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 fell into it and just couldn't, you know, finally I had to like put it down and say uh, sleep has to happen. But you love that when you're just sort of That's the sign of a good book. Yeah. Yeah. And it keeps you awake. Yeah. And look, yeah. thank you so, so much, Nancy. This has just been an absolute pleasure to chat oh, with you. I enjoyed talking to you. I love The Orchid Hour. It's going to do absolutely fantastically. It's a wonderful book. And I'm going to let you go and enjoy the rest of your New York evening. Yes. The day is young here. <laughs> All righty. Goodbye. Thank you for listening to this episode of A Novel Evening. I hope you enjoyed listening to it as much as I enjoyed making it. Please remember to go over and rate, subscribe and review wherever you listen to your podcasts and check us out on Instagram at A Novel Evening Podcast and over on TikTok under the same name and we'll see you next week. Bye-bye.